This podcast has been brought to you by the Sonar Network. Sonar! Welcome to the Bedpost Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Aaron Pym, and I'm the producer of the theatrical variety show, The Bedpost Sex Show. Here at the podcast, I invite guests and performers from the stage show and beyond to indulge me in a more in-depth conversation about sex and sexuality. This week, I have a super special guest, um, Google calling in uh, from the States. Um, I'm just going to rhyme through some of these accolades because this is kind of amazing and crazy. (laughs) Southwest Master Subtitle Holder 2016 and California's Leather Master Slave Title Holder of 2015. He's also a published author and erotic educator specializing in hierarchical dynamics, non-monogamous relationships, and erotic meditation. He's a two-time body storytelling champion and has traveled the country teaching his fun and lighthearted educational events for over a decade. Please welcome everybody, Orpheus Black. How are you? I'm great. How are you? <laughs> I actually have had kind of a hard weekend. Um, I'm going to get it into it on another episode, but I I had some minor surgery. I had a minor surgical procedure this weekend, so... Um, it's actually nice that I'm doing kind of a call-in interview with you because I'm actually kind of lounging in my bed uh, while I'm doing this interview. Wow. We're in the exact same location then. We're in bed. <laughs> We're already in bed together. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's about uh, 9 a.m. or 9, somewhere in there. Yeah, and it's about 1 p.m. for me. So, so Orpheus, from looking at all your social media, looking at your website. Um, I have to say you have a lovely social media presence. Well, thank you. (laughs) And and the main thing, the main takeaway, the main energy and feeling I get from all of it uh, is one of mindfulness. I'm wondering where where you source that from. Well, uh, I am an actual Buddhist. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been a Buddhist for the past five, six years. Um, I also have been a lifelong martial artist. Are you able to tell me just a little bit? Because I don't know, I don't know an awful lot about Buddhism. Are you able to tell me kind of the essence of Buddhism and how, how that relates to BDSM and kink? You know, Buddhism is really about being able to see things clearly, see things as they are, uh, not as you want them to be. It's about not wanting and holding on to uh, attachment. Uh, and attachment can be anything. Um, so basically saying, um, you know, these things aren't mine. You know, they belong to the world or they belong to everyone. Uh, being able to see things uh, not from a perspective of attainment. Like, I own this. You know, it can be a part of your life and you can have it and you can let it go at any point in time. And that's really a big part of 
Buddhism, especially as it pertains to intimacy. Because so many people get into it, their attachments, their feelings, like relationships that they can't let go of. You know, even though you know you should, and they're so attached to it that they can't. Even I feel like that rings true for like polyamory, for jealousy, and ownership within polyamory. And that's really, that is absolutely true. See, the thing is, is when you cheat, we believe that attachment breeds suffering, right? And in relationships, basically what you're doing is you're choosing your type of attachment and you're choosing your type of suffering, Mm -hmm. right? So if I'm in a position where I become really attached, really possessive, uh, there's going to be some suffering about it. If I become really jealous, there's going to be some suffering, right? Those things are the suffering, literally. Uh, so Buddhism is really about not allowing yourself to be attached. You can be connected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two different things, right? Two completely different things. Right. And, and the, the easiest way to kind of look at it is, are you holding on to it or is it holding on to you, right? Um, people who feel like they, they, you know, if they weren't in this relationship, they wouldn't have a relationship. Uh, a type of desperation. That's an attachment. Mm-hmm. Right? People who think that, um, you know, if they're not in this relationship, they, they're, gonna, they're going to uh, not have uh, a healthy relationship. They're, they're too old. They're too fat. They're too this. They're too that. Mm-hmm. Right? And so they have to be in this relationship. That's, that's the easiest way to look at uh, relationships from a standpoint. We, we don't believe that. If we believe in being totally self-sufficient on our own, who we are emotionally is enough. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, a, that's, that's something that needs to be conveyed. In my class, I try to tell people, if you don't get anything else from this class, I want you to know that you're enough. The mm-hmm. reason that you're here is because you're enough. Mm-hmm. And you know you're enough, but you need reaffirmation of it. Right? Nothing makes you a better person, not your car. You know, a lot of guys get that midlife crisis. They go out and buy the Ferrari, you know. They go out and buy, buy the new car. They, they got the new house. Mm-hmm. You know, or, or they get the, the new breasts in, or they, you know, a person, you know, all kinds of things, because they think it makes them better, but you're enough. And again, if you look at Buddhist monks, they live a very Spartan lifestyle. You know, it's very sparse. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't have much. They may, they may, you know, the robe belongs to the temple, the cup belongs to the temple, the food that they get is donated. They have no attachment, but being a monk on this side of the world, is a lot different. Being a Buddhist on this side of the wall, very different. But being in the throes of intimacy, in the throes of connection, in a place where you have to have connection, you have to have attachments. You know, like, I don't want to live on the street. <laughs> so I'm kind of attached to my home. But, but it doesn't mean that if I don't have this, no one's going to love me. Yeah, so being enough, the idea of being enough, being worthy... Uh, for me, that translates a lot for, say, like, I've been a serial monogamist. Like, right now, we're practicing non-monogamy, but I've been a serial mon- monogamist my whole life. Essentially going from one relationship to the next, just because I feel like, a lot of times, I feel like I need a partner, you know? I need a partner to be there. It's just that, right. rooted in that fear that, you know, I'm that I'm not enough just by myself, right? Right, and the fear is the suffering. Mm-hmm. The fear is the suffering, and and that's how when you look at it from a Buddhist context, you know, you, yeah, you've chosen a relationship, you've chosen to always be in a relationship, you've chosen to go from one to the next, 
but you never stop the suffering because there's always the inherent fear. That fear of what's going to happen if he's not here, what's going to happen if they're not here, what's going to happen if she's not here. You know, that mental stress, those mental gymnastics over and over again, that's the type of suffering. And even if it's a, a small, mild thing or maybe you've even gotten used to it, it's still suffering. Mm-hmm. Right? So my, my thing is trying to get free of that suffering. It's free of that suffering to not be so attached. And also, when we have, when we suffer near people, they suffer with us. That's mm-hmm. a natural empathic thing to do, mm-hmm. you know. And whether they know it or not, they're experiencing you as a your, you and your fear, mm-hmm. you and your suffering. You're bringing them into that space, right? So for me, being a Buddhist, I have to be present with my partner in the moment. If I am present in the moment and treat every moment as if it's going to be my last. So when I wake up in the morning, I kiss my wife. I say, I love you so much. I really love you. I love you every moment of the day. Have a wonderful day. You know, and then I say, you know what? Let me give you a call. Let me just check in on you. Good. You know, mm-hmm. I, do, I go about my life and I know if I never see you again, I had that moment. And I was fully present in that moment. Mm-hmm. Comes home. I say, I love you. I care about you. It's so good to see you. I'm very, I'm in that moment. I'm not thinking about, you know, it's just a, hey, here's a kiss, and I go into the kitchen, or here's a kiss, and I go out the door, here's a, no, I have to feel that moment, because if I never make it home, if I never see you again, I want to have that moment, I want to have no regret. Mm-hmm. And when you treat your partner like that, and you're fully present, they appreciate it. Oh, yeah, I can, they yeah. Know <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so. So that, for me, is what Buddhism has brought. So when we take it to a kink lifestyle, when we take it to BDSM, kink fetish sex, if I treat my partner like there's no one else on this planet, mm-hmm. like there's no one else on the earth in those moments. That is so sexy. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, it's important to me that, that when I look at them, I'm looking at them. I'm taking all of them in. I want to see every beauty. I want to see every mark. I want to see every bit. You know, I want to see all of them. I want to feel all of them, and I want to take it all in, right? And then when I walk, when when we when we're not together, mm-hmm. I have that. that. That is a part of me. It's ingrained in me. That sexual encounter, that touch, that, mm, you know, <laughs> it's all there. <laughs> yeah, that's I I I mean, and I think. Thank you. I, I think that's kind of, yeah, I think that's that's some great advice for any, any you know, connecting experience that you're having with a partner, you know, whether it's sexual or non-sexual. I mean, to be emotionally present and, you know, grounded in that moment and, and present in that moment. That's like, yeah, that that's the goal, right? That is the goal. And you know what, and, and I'm going to say this. I think that the distinction between sex, intimacy, friendship, connection, all these things only serves to divide individuals, right? If sex is an act of creation, then so is friendship. If, if friendship and sex are acts of creation, then so is any intimacy. Any form of human connection is an act of creation, thereby making it a form of sex. No, it's not penetration, mm-hmm. but it's an act of creating and evolving a relationship between two individuals. So all my interactions, I treat like they're sexual partners. 
because they're, if you're worthy of being in my presence, you're worthy of being connected and talked to and treated as if you're a sexual partner. Why should sexual, you know, penetrated partners be treated any better than any other friend that I'm, sleep- that I'm not sleeping with? That's very interesting. Right? See, I don't believe in the divisiveness of life. And that's really one of the things that I think Buddhism has helped me see. You know, is for me, if, you, if I have you in my life and I'm willing to make this connection that borderlines on maybe, a, you know, may become attachment at some point in time and I'm going to suffer for you, mm-hmm. then I should treat you with the same context that I treat a sexual partner. You should have the same respect and the same connection and I should be just as open and transparent and I should appreciate you in the same way that I treat them. Mm-hmm. See that is you know, see that simple. that is so lovely. Um, <laughs> that is just so lovely because my experience, unfortunately, I guess, with BDSM and with kink is that it actually, I I mean I I get to a very vulnerable place as the sub, but I don't necessarily I ne- haven't necessarily had experiences where the dom is emotionally, being emotionally vulnerable with me? I think it's not about dominance being emotionally vulnerable. What I think it is, is that dominance needs to be emotionally open to be able to go to the same, to any place that the sub needs you to go in order to have this scene, in order to be in this space. Mm -hmm. For me, we really get, uh, one of the mistakes that people make is they, they get all into the hard skills. They want to flog and they want to tie. Mm-hmm. And these are the mechanics of BDSM, right? But the soft skills, to be able to be present with another person is not, for the dominant, not necessarily vulnerable. Just going to be open to going wherever you need me to go, to be who you need me to be in this moment. Mm-hmm. I'm going to rise to any occasion that comes because that's who I am. I've mastered myself, my emotions, and I'm totally comfortable with being in this place with you. To me, that's the essence of being a dominant or a master, right? Mm-hmm. It's not about how well I flog. It's not about how good I tie. It's not about, you know, my commanding voice, you know? If you wish to serve me and be in this space with me, if you wish to submit, my job is is to be able to respect and honor that thing that you're giving to me, right? If I'm able to be in a space of respect, honor, uh, and responsibility, then I'm fulfilling my role as the dominant, as the leader. I'm interested. Does that mean? Yes, it does. It makes perfect sense. Um, I'm interested. Do you think emotional vulnerability on behalf on the part of the dominant? Do you think that hinders the relationship, like a subdom relationship? No, I don't think it hinders the relationship, but what has to happen is, as a dominant or as a master, a person has to be responsible. That is my first and foremost goal. You've given me your safety, your emotional, physical, uh, psychological safety. So I can't be in my feelings. I can't be in a space where I have to be cared for and tended to at most moments because that is my job to do do for you. Mm -hmm. So my job is to be able to connect with you on every level that you need to happen. It doesn't hinder me, but it could be a hindrance. I'll give you a perfect example. Well, I think what I think is a perfect example. I was in a space uh, with this woman. She's beautiful, model, 
uh, absolutely gorgeous. We're in a Japanese dojo, right? <laughs> the rain's coming down. They got the music, and I'm and the scene is perfect. I'm, I'm, you know, we're flogging and we're doing this and we're doing that. And she has this cathartic moment where she just releases. She's just, you know, crying. And because we're connected, and this is the thing: if you're connected to the individual that you're playing with, and they have a cathartic moment. You're having a cathartic moment, right? And so. I'm doing my scene, I'm emotional, she's emotional, she, I, I've got a couple tears coming down my face, she's got some tears coming down her face, and I've taught her how to do, how to sit, stand, do everything that I want her to do, but the thing that I did not teach her how to do was how to take care of me in an emotional space, right, as a dominant. Now, people might say that sounds sensitive, oh, that, that dominants don't get emotional, but I'm a human being first. Yeah, exactly. Right? So I didn't. I didn't create emotional protocols around it. So at that point in time, is my job to take care of me, to have her take care of me, no. or for me to take care of her, mm-hmm. right? So it's up to me to not be vulnerable, but to be very sensitive to the things, the, the, the needs of my property, the needs of my sub, the needs of the person I'm with. That is first and foremost. So it's very difficult to be vulnerable because if we both fall apart at the same time, we're mm-hmm. being taken care of. Right. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. <laughs> Let's move on to tell us what is what is black tie bondage? Black tie bondage is a type of bondage that I created where instead of tying the individual, you tie the individual to something. So it usually has some, a quick tie release um, that you pull and all the bondage comes off of the individual. Uh, so I usually use their like wooden knives. Um, I've used swords, I've used uh, lots of things for theatrics, you know, uh, for shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, but basically, it's just a method of getting a person out of bondage as quickly as possible. Interesting. And how, how, did, you, how did you come across uh, dreaming this up? <laughs> well, you know what? I, I do a lot of fireplay, and I do a lot of bondage, and I wanted to combine the two, but I couldn't do it safely uh, because... If the rope caught on fire, I wasn't able to take the, uh, I wouldn't be able to take the person out of the bondage quickly. So I was like, how can I do this? And uh, I had a, a wooden shinai, uh, I'm sorry, boken from my martial arts class. And I was like, hey, let's try and put this in here. And in trying to do a different tie, I was like, this isn't working. And I just slid it out and everything just came apart. And it was like, oh, this is beautiful. <laughs> right? It was just Ta-da, right? It was like magic. And so we just kept going with it. And people absolutely love it. And now we're kind of finding they have multiple applications for, especially for people who've never been tied up before mm. and want to be, and they don't know how they're going to react to being confined. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. Or the loss of uh, motor skills, uh, as far as being able to defend yourself. People have a big thing with having their wrist tied. It could be very loaded for some yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah. So, what we've done is, I just say this, I can, it, it takes me about five minutes to put you in, it takes me no seconds to take you out, <laughs> right? And people are willing to try more because they don't have to go through the whole process of being untied. When they need to come out, they need to come out. Also for people who are trying to do ties uh, and they have medical issues, hmm. right? So maybe you have a hip issue or a back issue, maybe some respiratory, but you still want to try it so we can tie and he said, okay, you know, I can't be in this any longer. Can you take me out? I removed the, uh, the the gimmick, or which I like to call a gimmick, or the quick tie release. 
and the person's out. They feel an immediate uh, loss of pressure on their body. So they're no longer restrained. They can move freely. Wow. And, okay, you just mentioned it oh so offhandedly. So f- fire play. <laughs> For people that would just have no idea what that even means, please explain. Fire play is the erotic use of fire for the sole purpose of sexual gratification. Okay? And what that means is I can use fire in many different ways. And if you notice throughout your life, uh, when people want to be romantic, what do they do? Candles, fireplace, right? Campfire. Um, <laughs> campfire, right? <laughs> All those are bringing fire, the fire element closer to you. It helps set the mood. It changes the lighting in the room. Uh, it really adds to it. What we do is we take fire, and I bring it across your body, and what we do is we get these large uh, sensations that go through your body, much like if you tried to get into a bathtub that's just really hot, like barely enough to, you can stand it, and that uh, adrenaline rush that comes over you, or that chill that goes down your body, <laughs> that happens repeatedly, repeatedly. We do it over and over, and people get an amazing adrenaline rush, and it's not painful at all, mm-hmm. um, but it is a very sensual thing. It also helps with trust. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? When you, can, when you, trust, when you want to allow somebody to put uh, fire on your body, it really helps to foster the process of trust. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> so what what are you actually doing? You have like a torch and you're running it across someone's body? Well, in general, most people use a torch. Uh, there'll be Kevlar, coffee, so tips. Those are usually dipped in uh, a fuel. And okay. then uh, you can bring it close to a person where you blow through the fire. It's like hot, warm summer air across your body. Wow. You can also have it tapped on your body and you know there's these burnt bright flashes of intense heat um you can have it trailed across your body where the fire just trails up and down your body and you're covered and bathed in fire um i also do what's called fire painting another thing i invented uh where you dip a brush in fuel and you paint in fire across a person's body wow And I imagine there's a lot of a lot of presets that we're holding mentally about fire, right? We're taught that fire is we're taught not to touch fire. It's hot and dangerous, right? So exactly, and another attachment. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> that it can actually be pleasurable, and that that kind of blows my mind that it's not at all painful. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's a trick to everything. You know, I mean, I wouldn't want listeners to just go out and grab, you know, some cotton swabs, <laughs> forceps, light on fire, and, you know, douse their, their partner. No. <laughs> I wouldn't want that. <laughs> okay. But what people have to understand is this is, um, first of all, the body's not flammable. You're not going to get touched with fire and you're just going to go up in flame. Uh, that's not what happens. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but your body has sensors that react specifically to heat, to hot and cold. Right, and if you've ever been in a jacuzzi and then jumped into uh, like maybe a spa, you get to the hot water and then you get to the cold water. Mm-hmm. It's very therapeutic to the body. Okay, it's almost like reawakening your senses, uh, the hot self and the cold self. If you've ever done hot yoga as opposed to cold yoga, you know that there's a distinct difference between the hot and cold. Right. So I don't want to think of people that think about the flame. I want people to think about the 
soothing nature of warmth. Wow. I'm into it. <laughs> Are you really? <laughs> I think I could be. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. I love your optimism. Um. So I imagine there are like a hell of a lot of precautions you have to take to not make it dangerous. Uh, yeah, yeah, that is correct. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the first thing that you want to think about is getting education from a person who actually knows what they're talking about. Um, in some kind of mentorship or go to attend classes uh, where people really know what they're talking about. But that being said, there are not a lot of people who honestly know what they're doing when it comes to fireplay. Mm -hmm. So one has to be really careful and use a lot of common sense. And as we all know, common sense isn't that common. Yeah. Okay. So it's best that the person who wants to receive uh, fireplay also takes the time to uh, be a part of a class or a structured environment where they can learn what should if it should feel like and what it shouldn't feel like. As and the same thing goes for those who want to do the fire play on another individual so that they can feel what it feels like and what it shouldn't feel like. And that way they go into it with a common mindset. Because mm-hmm. I, can, I can imagine yeah. if you let that torch linger a little too long. Yeah, you, you can get a burn. Yeah. You can get a burn, you know. And, and the one thing I try not to do is I, I try not to give people too much because there's always somebody out there who's going to try it. Mm-hmm. You know, without the necessary uh, guidance or instruction. So I don't want to give away. I don't want to give away too much. But you know, what, what's important is that people really take the time to learn what you sh- should and shouldn't do because getting burned is possible. I don't know anybody who's had you know serious burns over their whole entire body or something like that. But there are those horror stories where people have been burned because the person did it wrong. Sure. Okay, I, if we're if we're talking about fire, let's let's just also talk about knives. <laughs> Why not, right? Yeah. <laughs> right not. Why not? Because okay. <laughs> fire is pretty edgy. Uh, knife play, I feel like, is very edgy. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm>... Really. <laughs> what? That's a hilarious reaction. Why Why isn't it? Well, because, you know what, here's the thing. We handle knives all the time. If you've made a meal, you're handling a knife. You know, if you've cut a steak, you're handling a knife. We interact with knives all the time. What's edgy about knives is our attachment to it from when we were children. Yes. Right? This idea that you shouldn't touch it, but you've been touching them your whole life. I hope you've been cut by them. Yeah, yeah. Like, I always think why... Um... When you're watching a play and there's knives on stage in a play and they, you know, there's some stage combat where someone is getting cut with a knife, like everyone in the audience knows what that feels like. Everybody's been cut with a knife, you know, by mistake in your kitchen or whatever. And I think we just have, as you're saying, this attachment, this like visceral reaction to knives. Yes. And what we're attached to is the, the indoctrination that we've had as children, right? But we know that eyes aren't going to jump up and just cut, cut and kill you, mm-hmm. right? It, it is literally a tool that people have used for thousands of years to either survive, live, uh, you know, do things that in your everyday life. So we, the, the, the connection with um, knives shouldn't be that. 
Mm-hmm. So what what exactly but, is is happening then when during knife play? What what happens in the bedroom when well, someone brings a knife in the room? Well, if you've <laughs> talked about it first, then everything's good. If you haven't talked about it and the guy comes in with a knife, there's a bit of a problem. You might you might want to rethink what's going to happen. <laughs> so let's say after some successful negotiation around knife play, yeah, which could happen as a person use this as a tool for um, basically just kind of taking your body and focusing it on one portion of your uh, of your focusing your mind on one portion of your body. Mm-hmm. Right, so when the tip of your, the knife touches your body, believe me, everything in your mind goes to that one place. Yes, I would imagine so. Inch by inch, step by step, you have now been taken out of your your, your whole cognizance. There's nothing that you're thinking of. You know, you're not thinking of anything other than what's happening to your body. And I use it as a basic tool, okay, a basic tool to get people who are always in other places where their mind goes to other places where they can't enjoy sex because their mind's thinking about the, picking up the kids or, or going down the street or doing this other thing. Mm-hmm. Believe me, when I have the knife on your skin, you're right here in the moment. You are nowhere else. Right? So it's just a basic, simple tool. Now, knife playing is one of the more dangerous things because accidents do happen. I mean, there's, there's been people who have tripped and fallen and accidentally cut uh, the person at their wood. And people would push down too hard and left marks or drew blood. But there, when knife play is done correctly, there is no um, blood drawn. There okay. is no breaking of the skin. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So it's more of just, um, yeah, a tool, like a meditation tool to just clear the mind, essentially. Right. <laughs> and right. Right. And you're playing with... And you're playing with that idea, you're playing with that whole attachment that we have to the, to the right. fact that it's dangerous and it's going to hurt. And you're playing, you're playing with that idea as a tool in role play. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and that's cool. Like, there's lots of ways to use a tool. Uh, like, you know, a butter knife is pretty much the most universal knife. And we, I mean, you've, you've got people who use it to screw in and unscrew, you know, these things. And you use it for butter and you use it for these other things, right? It's a, it's a universal tool, mm-hmm. right? But when, you, when it comes down to a knife, how it fits into your scene, it has to be negotiated between both individuals, and both individuals need to get something out of it, mm-hmm. right? And both individuals need to be careful. It's not just on one person when it comes to knife play, okay? So for me, well, I use it as a specific meditation tool as a way of getting a person into their body and out of their mind. Mm-hmm. So, you know, other people may use it in role play where... Uh, where people have uh, abduction fantasy or um, or they have masochism and they're using this as a tool of torture. I mean, there's lots of different ways to use it. Me, myself, I don't go that far. Mm-hmm. It's about intensity and it's about being present. I love that. I mean, I, I'd be op- I, I, I mean, there was one time where I had somebody take out kind of like this, uh, this kind of ancient looking hunting knife to like cut off my clothes like but I think that's as that's as far as my experimentation with knives has gone um well you know let's examine that let's examine that mm -hmm. okay so when a person cuts off your clothes if you think about it viscerally from that standpoint when you when you when you 
take and you're, you're going to t- uh, take an animal and you're going to uh, process them, then what's the first thing they do? They start cutting away your upper layers. Mm-hmm. Right? There's almost a shedding of your layers. Right? People actually feel a sense of being freed from that thing that they've been cut away, you know, like they've been let go. You know? Like, like a, a, again, like an animal in a net. You know, you cut them out and they're free. That actually accesses a different, more primal portion of us. Hmm. It did feel that way. Right? <laughs> <laughs> See, it, it is literally a tool. And when you really look at the attachments, the, the primal body and the attachments that we have to all these primal things, mm-hmm. these, you know, fire, knife, these are some of the most ancient tools that have been around for human beings forever. And we have a very specific relationship to it. And if I can bring another relationship to that thing, you know, it accesses you on in a different way on a primal level. Change the relationship you have with the knife or with fire. Exactly. That's a very interesting exactly. way of putting it. Um, all right, Orpheus Black, we're going to take a very quick break uh, just to have a word from our sponsor. And then we'll be right back. All right. This episode has been brought to you by the worker owners of Come As You Are. Come As You Are has the peculiar distinction of being the world's only worker-owned cooperative sex shop. With feminist and anti-capitalist values, Come As You Are only carries sexuality products that they truly believe in at the lowest price possible. Enter coupon code BEDPOST when you check out at comeasyouare.com to receive a 15% discount. And don't forget that shipping on orders over $50 is free in Canada. That's B-E-D-P-O-S-T when you visit comeasyouare.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Bedpost Podcast. We're here with Orpheus Black. And let's uh, let's switch topics. Let's stop talking about knives and fire. Um, <laughs> um, I'd love to talk about... Uh, you sound like you enjoyed that topic, by the way. You sound like really enjoyed that I, I have to admit I did I'm pretty curious about it uh, <laughs> um, I'd love to talk about one of your recent blog posts um, I know this is th- I know this is a, a huge topic to talk about so feel free to abbreviate or um, or we can just talk about this one topic for the rest of the show whatever you want to do um, zenful thoughts about patriarchy and the male submissive struggle big on this one. Oh. <laughs> oh. These require so much subtext, man. <laughs> I know. Here, here, I'm going to put you on the spot. What specifically about this topic do you, you want me to talk about? Because this is huge. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a huge topic. Um, just how, how men are informed to, to essentially to reject the feminine. And right. how, okay. as young men, as young people, they're informed, you know, to just have to take that dominant caregiving role from right. an early age. Right. And how that and how that will, even not even talking about the whole male submissive, how you think that negatively impacts their sex lives as adults. You know what, I had, I had a conversation with a veteran, uh, Iraq war veteran, and he said, you know, when I was a child, I was in the, the stru- I was under the structure of my mother's home. Mm-hmm. 
When I went to school, I was within the structure of the school. When I went to college, I was in the structure of college. When I went to the Army, I was in the structure of the U.S. military. And then when I left that, I no longer had structure. Right. I never created structure for myself, right? And if you look at structures in general, uh, whether they're heterotopic spaces or whether they're literal places, structure is something that everyone needs, okay? And as men, we're told that we are supposed to create structures for others. We're supposed to create dynamics, uh, and they're our dynamics. They're our relationships. They're our things. They're our possessions. If you're in my life, you're in my life under my under my uh, rules, under my guideline, my guidance. And we treat our partners in this way. Okay, we treat our families, and we treat our children in this way, right? Mm-hmm. And but we treat it as if uh, there are our support. Like we can't exist without these structures. Okay, and to me, being forced to be responsible when you know you're not wanting to be responsible for someone else, when you're not wanting to be responsible for yourself, when you're not wanting to create these structures for other people is the first problem. Okay, when you're a child, you say, well, you know, man up. And like man is a thing, like it is a structure. That's why we, that's, you know, where the patriarchal narrative comes in. Patriarchy is a structure. Yeah. Right. And and once we create our own individual patriarchal uh, idea, we're supposed to kind of trap other people into it. I mean, it's not enough for me to be to adhere and to be complicit in patriarchy. I have to convert others. Mm-hmm. Right. You're, I'm going to I'm going to talk to my friends. Oh, man. up, And that friend's going to tell the other guy, man, up. And this other guy's going to tell man up. But really what we want to do is be free of that structure. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you're free of that structure, you're automatically labeled as feminine. Mm-hmm. You know, girlish, woman, woman-esque. And the problem, one of the problems I have with just that whole thing in of itself is, what's wrong with being compared to a woman? Yeah, exactly. Why is that the worst thing a man can be called? Exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it's like lions loathing their food. You know, it's like, it's like, it's like cow sitting grass. I mean, you're inseparable. It's a part of you. You know what I mean? It's who, it, it, you're, men and women are so ingrained in one another that, that you shouldn't be able to see yourself as, as uh, anything different. We, we are each other, mm-hmm. you know? And, but again, the structure keeps us from seeing that. Mm-hmm. The structure becomes more important than your own wants, needs, and desires. Okay, so the way I'll kind of uh, look at it, uh, I'll kind of uh, look at it like this is, is like the king's new clothes, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. he, you know, he's, he's strutting around, and he believes that he is totally, he believes that he's totally close. He believes, he, this is, it props him up, his ego is on full blast, <laughs> all the way up, right? <laughs> right? But he's strutting around, not realizing everybody can see his butt, you know? <laughs> Everybody's seeing right through him, yeah. right? That's the patriarchy at work. You know, I, I, this guy was like, you know, I've always wanted to be free of this so I can be me. So I, I, I want to be at the foot of a woman. I, I want a woman over me. I don't want to do these things. I don't want to, I don't want to have to be the man anymore. So do you think that that's the, that's the psychology behind a, a male being attracted to being a submissive? Correct. You know, and it's not so much just 
you know, like the yielding. I mean, because that's fetish. That's, yeah. You know, the, the, the play, the, the fetishizing, the, the feet and the boots and the, the corsetry, and that's fantasy and fetish. You know, and if you look at it like uh, the being flogged and being spanked, that's sadism and masochism. Right? But the idea that you want to be submissive to a woman, right, is really revolved around not wanting to be trapped into the structure of patriarchy, the thing that holds you down, the thing that represses you. Mm-hmm. Right? It's saying, in order for me to be this person, I need to completely shake this, and I don't know how to exist without it. Mm-hmm. Right? So for me, uh, in my opinion, the male uh, submissive struggle is, is one that's it, it's almost, it's almost uh, like running in a circle. It's like being on a hamster wheel. <laughs> it, it, the, the more you try to avoid um, confronting this idea of, of being outside of the structure of patriarchy, the more you wind up trapped in it. Mm-hmm. Okay? Remember, submissive, submission is half is letting go, the other half is not holding on. And one of the ways I kind of explain this is, if you've ever been in an argument with somebody and you said, you know what, I'm letting go of the conversation, but you hold on to the feelings, Mm -hmm. you're still trapped into it. Right. You know what I'm saying? So so, so I I might say, you know, I'm done with this conversation, but I'm walking away, but if I'm still holding on the feelings, I'm still trapped inside of it. So if you you can say physically, I'm going to walk aside, you know, outside this patriarchal narrative, and I'm not going to do anything, but if you're holding on to it still, no matter what you do, in your gut, it's still a part of you, then you still have more work to do mm-hmm. to be free of it, right? And submission is striving to be free. Male submission is striving to be free of that patriarchal narrative that you've been trapped in. Mm-hmm. Okay? And remember, uh, surrender, you can surrender. It's easy to surrender because surrender happens in spurts. Right? So you say, you know what? Tell me to go get your coffee. Yeah, I'll go get your coffee. And then it's over. Right. Right? Tell me to kneel. I'll kneel, but then it's over. Right. But submission is a perpetual state of non-resistance. Because surrender is is not not resistant. Mm -hmm. Submission is a perpetual state of non-resistance. So not resisting the patriarchy. Not resisting your heart. Not resisting who you are at your core. Not resisting the things that make you you, that make you unique. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the submission, that's the goal. So, so when, I, when I talk to male submissives who are trapped, I'm like, forget the patriarchy, forget what your friends think. Who are you? Who mm-hmm. are you without your friends? Mm-hmm. Why do you need to hold on to that? Why, is it still, why do those words still have power over you? If, if those words, that phrasing still has power over you, then no one else will. Mm-hmm. And if that's what you're looking for, then you need to make room for it. And the first thing that needs to go is your attachment to the whole idea of what man is. Stop being man, start being you. Interesting. <laughs> very well said. That is very well articulated. <laughs> Of course. And, and to try and simplify them can be can be difficult because people are like, well, why don't you just just submit? And it's like it's not just submitting. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's 
I, I tell I tell my, my my classes it's role play until it becomes the role you play. Hmm. Right? You know, most people need you know, it's a game. It's for play. We do it once a week and we do it this but if it's truly who you are, what you're doing is trying on this role in a safe way. Mm-hmm. Right? Without expectation. So we you go to the mistress's house and you, you put on whatever she wants and you do whatever she wants and it's safe. Yeah. And then you come back and you do it again and it's safe. But eventually it becomes who you are. If this is who you are. Mm-hmm. Right? But for the added layer that there's an expectation, an unseen expectation on every man to conform, adhere, and convert other men to think in the same way, shape, form, or fashion, and not only convert you, but to continue to reinforce the, the meme of what masculinity is and what man is, if you get out of that loop, we automatically question your manhood or who you are as a, as a, a male identified individual. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah. Right? But the pressure to be free so that you can experience yourself wholly should be a lot more. That should override that whole thing. Do you think the same thing can be said for women? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. You know, I think they, they, they hold that the idea of woman or the attachment of woman, uh, that, that, that hold that it has over people who identify as female, isn't as strong as what it has on men. Because we've been slowly chipping away at this, what, what femininity is, what, woman, what womanhood is, what motherhood is, you know, for years. Yeah. We've slowly been chipping away at it. So I think it's easier to slip into um, roles of power, uh, roles of uh, submission, roles of, uh, you know, whatever you want to be, you can be, and, and, pe- and the world is now encouraging people to go that way. Mm-hmm. Men are not encouraged to let go of masculinity. Yeah, you think men are a little a little further behind. Yes, yeah. yes I do. You know, and, and here's, a good, here's a good example. I mean, when it comes down to, uh, like I used to work from home, I took care of the kids. Mm-hmm. I watch the kids, I get the whole nine yards. People are like, well, that's not a good job. That's not a job for a man. So why not? So it's okay for my wife to let go of her job, take care of the kids, but it's not okay for me to let go of my job and watch the kids. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Why? Well, that's not what men do. You see, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. That's and crazy. And I've that for men and women. Really? Ugh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's really important that that when we start talking about submission, the struggle of submission is is a, a universal thing. That and, and I, I think people also have to understand that dominance and submission are a spectrum. Everybody has dominance. Everybody has submission. Yeah. Right. We just choose to exist more in one space than the other. But you have to have both. And this idea that dominance is inherently masculine is a fallacy. Right. So I I can be in my submission. Let's say, let's say I'm at work and my boss says, do these papers. Guess what? I'm doing those papers if I want to keep that job. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be like, look, I'm too dominant to take these orders. <laughs> right? Or if, if I want to, to lay back and allow my partner to say she's me, I have to be in my submission. Because submission, submission again, is non-resistance and is a, a state of acceptance where we can take things in. Mm-hmm. You know? To receive without question. Right? That's really what submission is about. So when we're having a dialogue about submission 
dominance really is how comfortable do I feel with receiving? Mm-hmm. Right? When you're open and you're allowing yourself to feel, to really be present in the moment, you're in your submission. And it doesn't matter whether it's in a bedroom, it doesn't matter whether it's in a boardroom. It doesn't matter whether it's in traffic on a street right? <laughs> or in a park during meditation. How willing am I, am I ready to receive? Mm-hmm. Am I comfortable with receiving? Being touched in every way. It doesn't have to be physical. Being touched. Right? So, so for me, guys are not supposed to receive. They're supposed to act on. We are the providers. We're providers. We give. We don't receive anything. Mm-hmm. And isn't that some of the, the problem with, like, homosexuality in, in, like, the homophobic mind? Oh, you mean you're going to receive this guy inside of you? Right? Receiving. People don't even want to hear about uh, uh, pegging or, or any type of anal play because they're uncomfortable receiving. Mm-hmm. You, you, you get where I'm going? Yeah, yeah. I was talking about that exact same thing with the other day, just how innately uh, women, you know, with most sexual experiences, women are like actually welcoming and receiving someone else into their space. Like that's the typical female experience. Whereas men are, are getting into someone else's space. Like that's, those are the typical roles, right? Right. right. And and again, look at in our narrative, let's say sci-fi. You know, it's always going to the mothership, right? <laughs> the, the mothership is where everything is housed. Everything goes into, in and out of, right? Yeah. This is the type of mentality that we, you know, that we have. You know, even if you didn't label it that, everybody looks at the TV, they see that structure, and they see the same, they see the process, and they think mother or female receiving. Yeah. Okay? So it's important that we understand what we're really talking about. We're not, we're not talking about a phobia of homosexuality. What we're talking about is a phobia of uh, receiving, of lack of, you know, I, I, just the idea of a man receiving anything is a problem. Um, another example of this in the lifestyle would be female dominants receive uh, tribute. Male dominants are not supposed to receive tribute. It's actually looked, upon, looked down upon. That means like gifts, gifts and things like that, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, they, they, you know, the, the male subs always provide, always give, always give, right? They're giving these tributes, and the, the, the female dominants are receiving these gifts. If you do that in the, in the male community, you're looked at like you're, you know, lower than life. You know, if a male were to receive this or require tribute uh, where he's receiving, they're like you're using. Interesting. You're not supposed to use people like that, yeah. right? Because we're uncomfortable with receiving and we're still sticking to this patriarchal notion that we're supposed to be the provider. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. It can, get really, it can get really deep. It can get really deep. And just to bring it back, male submissives uh, are oftentimes still locked into the, the narrative because, again, uh, the, the whole hierarchy within the, the, the female femdom, uh, male sub role model does have them as providers. And I, I get, I, I understand that they get to have a stereotypical sense of masculinity. But for me, if I were a femdom, it would be more getting them into a space where they can shed that narrative and exist as themselves, and then recontextualize the relationship between dominant, uh, between dominant and submissive. You know, that's just my narrative. That's what I do in my own relationships. 
That's amazing. Well, Orpheus, we are we are basically at time here. <laughs> I gave you some okay. some <laughs> some heavy questions. <laughs> And I enjoyed it so much. I enjoyed it too. And they just took us right about at time. I would love, though, if you could tell people um, where they can see you next, if you have any classes coming up, and uh, where they can find you to follow you and see all of your good writing and your good work. Okay, you can go to OrpheusBlack.com. It's a new website. tells you about all our product offerings. Uh, We have a calendar coming up uh, in September with all the new dates and everything. You can also go to uh, askorpheusblack.blogspot.com and you can find us there. Uh, And that's where all my writings are. And if you go to any social media, I'm Orpheus Black on every social media, Twitter, Instagram, so on and so forth. I'd love to hear from you and we love having questions. If you have questions you want me to ask uh, or answer, we'll go ahead and do that for you. Right away when you said ca- when you said calendar, I automatically thought <laughs> like a photo shoot that you were going to be selling a calendar of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, no. Um, Orpheus, thank you so so much for taking the time to speak with me today. This has just been absolutely amazing. You're lovely. It's been enlightening, uh, and I thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I'm going to sign off. Everyone, this has been Orpheus Black, and I'm Aaron Pym, and this has been the Bedpost Podcast. Check back weekly, everyone, because we release a new episode every single Friday. And if you want to rate and review the podcast on iTunes while you're there, that would be oh so greatly appreciated. If you're in Toronto and want to see Bedpost Live, my variety stage show runs at the Social Capital Theatre the third Friday of every month at 8. For more information on everything Bedpost, please visit us at our website, bedpost.ca. And if you have any comments, questions, suggestions, shoot me an email at thebedpostsexshow at gmail.com. Lastly, the Bedpost podcast features original music by Stephanie Copeland, who can be reached on Facebook or at her website, stephcopelandmusic.com.